Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The mission of the Greenville Oaks Church of Christ is to inspire people to follow Jesus because we are convinced that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. As always, we ask that you subscribe to, rate, and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Colin Packer. Over the past six Sundays, we have looked at six disruptions found in the Bible that the people of God were forced to walk through. And in each disruption, there were two options that the people of God had, and different ones of them chose different ways. One was they, uh, they used that disruption to move backwards to something that was known, something that was comfortable, but often God wasn't found in that backwards move. Think back to the story of uh, Moses in the desert and them saying, why did you take us out here? We wish we could go back to Egypt where at least we had food on the table, Moses. The other option, though, is a move forward. To move with God into the unknown. And that's always a scary thing. The first week we talked about Abram and, and, and God says, I want to bless you. And I want you to leave this land, your people, your father's household and go to the land I'm going to show you. And it was uncertain where that would be. But the promise was that God would be with Abram. And, and that's what the people of God have found over and over again in this series. Is when they move forward with God in the middle of a disruption into what's unknown, what's uncomfortable, it's hard. But God finds them there in those moments in uncertainty. None of us have chosen the disruption we're currently in. None of us knew that COVID-19 was going to turn into what it has this year. It came without our consent. We don't have control over the virus, but here's what we do have control over. We have a choice of how we will respond to this disruption in our lives. We have a choice about where we'll turn our attention and how we'll choose to move forward in the midst of this. And often that choice is between moving backward or moving forward, moving into the known that we've known before, or moving forward into the unknown that we know will grow us. In this final message of the series, we see another disruption that occurs in the early church. And the choice is the same. They can stay the early church in the homogeneous tribal reality that they've been in for centuries, or they can choose to follow God's invitation to accept the Gentiles with all of the discomfort and conflict that will come with it. And I hope you'll listen closely to this message this morning because the struggle of the early church is still a great struggle for this church and all churches today. How willing are we to love and include others who aren't like us? This has been the challenge since the early days of the church and it remains so today. And so with that, I want to ask for prayers and I want to pray right now for us as God delivers a message to us this morning. God, my prayer is that what I've prepared this week to share with these people would be your words, be your message for this church, because we believe that the words of Scripture continue to speak powerfully to realities today that even the writers then couldn't have foreseen. Because your Holy Spirit, who inspired its writing, continues to inspire our hearing. So my prayer, God, is that you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ is formed in our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Our world has been carved up into us and them. 
And the reality is it's always easier to get along with people who are just like us than it is to get along with people who are like them. Over the past 50 years, this principle has been accepted by many churches. The church growth movement has been built on the homogeneous unit principle, which basically says that people are more comfortable with people who are like them, who look like they do, who believe like they do, who live like they do. So if you want to grow a church, many church growth experts have said, what you do is you pick a target audience out there and you gear everything about that experience to that particular segment of the population. And when they come in, they'll know this, this feels like home. It's for me. The question isn't if that principle is true. Of course, it's easier to do life with people like us. It's easier to unfollow, unfriend, and block people on social media who see the world differently than we do. The question, though, is if this principle is what God had in mind when Jesus launched the church into the world. And to answer that question, I want to direct our attention to the book of Acts, where we're going to find the final disruption of this series for the people of God. After the resurrection, Jesus appears to more than 500 friends and disciples before he ascends to the right hand of the Father. If you have your Bibles this morning, let me encourage you to open to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 is where I'll begin reading at the beginning of this book that tells the story of the early church. And in Acts 1, we read about Jesus' final encounter with his disciples before the ascension. Let me read now from Acts 1 verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach till the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, if you'll remember back to sermons I've preached over the past two Sundays, I talked the last two weeks about the exile and then about the disruption of Jesus coming into the world with all the expectations that were brought by the different groups about the coming of the Messiah. The exile was the greatest disruption in Israel's story. They lost their homeland. Their temple had been destroyed. Israel's identity was shaken in that moment, 586 BC. But even when they were able to return from exile to Jerusalem, it was important for them to do whatever they could to restore Israel to her former glory. And that was difficult to do since they were living under the rule of foreign empires, even upon their return. So with that background, it's easier to understand the question the disciples are asking in Acts chapter one, as Jesus is in his final days on earth before ascending to the father. They ask him, Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, that was the project you came to accomplish, right, Jesus? And it's pretty clear by Jesus' response that restoring the kingdom to Israel wasn't his top priority. Let's read on in verse 7, Acts chapter 1. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. That's it. Poof. Jesus is gone. The Holy Spirit is going to come. That's the promise. And this group of Jewish followers of Jesus is, in, is tasked with inviting a new group of people into the body of Christ. Jesus' project was not to restore the kingdom to Israel after all. Jesus' vision was that they would start a new group of people, a church. And in that passage, he says to them, look, you're going to go to Judea and Samaria. You're going to go to the ends of the earth. And they knew what that meant. <laughs> Those must not all be Jewish people. There must be others that you want to include. This is the great disruption of the New Testament. Jesus is gone. The Holy Spirit is going to come. And now they have to figure out how to get along with other people who aren't like them. The good news, it turns out, isn't just about us. It's about them. And this will be the struggle for the early church. How are we going to include the Gentiles to become the people of God? Will they have to become Jews? Will they have to be circumcised? Will they have to follow Jewish food regulations? Really, the question comes down to this. Do the Jews, do the Gentiles have to become like us Jews in order to become the people of God? In order for God to be pleased with them? And Peter is going to give the rest of his life to this question and to this mission. Paul, he's going to give the rest of his life to this question and to this mission. Eleven of the twelve apostles are going to travel around the world to Gentile territory. And they're going to have to figure out how to help communities answer this one question. How do we see that the blessing of God extends beyond just us to a new us that includes them? And to be honest, we're still trying to figure this out, aren't we? The insiders and the outsiders have changed faces over the past 2,000 years. It's not so much Jews and Gentiles today, but we're still trying to figure out how to reach them, aren't we? We haven't mastered this one yet. In Acts chapter 2, the journey begins for the early church. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fills each one of the people who are present in this miraculous scene. But I want you to notice who is present at Pentecost. So turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Again, this is not just a gathering of Jews from Israel or from the city of Jerusalem. Listen to where these people are from. Acts 2 verse 5. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native languages? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia. I'm repeating old statements, actually. Let's keep reading in verse 10. Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own 
tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? It's a remarkable scene. It's a great moment. The promised Holy Spirit arrives. And what is the fruit of this Spirit's presence? It's people from various locations and languages coming together and miraculously able to understand one another despite the language barriers that are present. But as you hear this story, I wonder if another story comes to mind from earlier in Scripture. It does for me. The story I mentioned in the beginning, the first message of this series. In the first disruption we talked about, we talked about Abram going to a new land, but right before that scene comes Genesis chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. Do you remember how that story ends? Let's turn there right now. Keep a finger there in Acts chapter 2, but I want to go to Genesis chapter 11. The people have built a tower to the heavens to make a name for themselves, and God comes down to disrupt their plans. Listen to this, Genesis 11, verses 8 and 9. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. But in Genesis 12, God calls Abram and blesses him. Do you remember the nature of God's blessing on Abram? Do you remember where that's supposed to head? What that's supposed to do in the end? Let's read again in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, about this blessing God gives to Abram. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Why does God bless Abram? Why are the people of Israel God's chosen people? Why were they the ones that received the blessing of God? God says it clearly in verse 3 of chapter 12 of Genesis. God blesses Abram and this tribe so that all peoples on earth will be blessed. And for centuries, people are going to speak different uh, languages and different tribes. For centuries, nation is going to take up sword against nation. But in Acts 2, all of that changes. When the Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost, the church gets its start. And at first, the church wasn't a group of people who looked or thought alike. The first day of the church, it doesn't look like that at all. They didn't speak the same language. They were a multinational group of people from many different nations with a common experience of a Holy Spirit that indwells each and every one. For a season, this united church experiences relative peace. They meet in each other's homes daily, breaking bread, enjoying the teaching of the apostles and the leaders, having everything in common, it says. But by Acts chapter 6, things are not nearly as peaceful. You remember the first conflict that the church has? The first conflict the church has is a racial conflict. There are widows in the church who are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. The Hebrew widows are getting plenty of food. But in this story, the Greek widows are the ones that are being overlooked. So the apostles appoint seven men to become responsible for ensuring that these widows are treated equitably. But there's a specific detail about these men they choose that's important for us to hear in line with what Acts chapter 2 said. 
They're to choose men who are full of the spirit and wisdom. I find it interesting that in Acts chapter 2 and Acts 6, when the Holy Spirit fills people, racial discrimination and alienation is eradicated. Which means, if in our own day the church is not embodying fully the, the unity of the body of Christ across all of the differences in our world, perhaps we need to beg God again to send his spirit to do what the spirit does when spirit shows up. Throughout the book of Acts, the question of including Gentiles continues to be the key question the church is struggling through. It's the disruption they face. In Acts chapter 10, Peter has a vision and an experience that expands the limits of his relationships. Cornelius is a Roman centurion and a Gentile, and he invites Peter into his home after a series of incredible events. And he says, Peter, we want to know the story that you believe in of your God. And while Peter shares the good news about Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes down on this Gentile household, on Cornelius and all of his house. And Peter baptizes the entire household. But it's clear that not everyone in the church is pleased with Peter's decision. Gentiles being included in without following the regulations, without being circumcised. Who gave you the right to baptize him, Peter? And Peter says, look, the Holy Spirit comes down. I don't know what else you want me to do. He baptizes. And so in Acts chapter 15, this dispute comes to a high mark. This disruption comes. And the leaders of the church have to make a decision of how they're going to include the Gentiles. That God certainly wanted to be included. And after Peter, Paul, and others share their thoughts and experiences, the Jerusalem church decides that the Gentiles should be included. I want you to listen to James' statement, who's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 15, verse 19, as he talks about how they are to include these outsiders into their midst. James says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. What is James' pronouncement? Let's not make it difficult on the Gentiles who are trying to find God. And there are just four things, four things out of all those laws in the Old Testament. They say it would really be good, Gentiles, as you come into this family, if you keep these four things for the sake of our community and for the sake of your purity and righteousness. And yet the question isn't settled with a conference. Most of Paul's letters that we read in the New Testament are instructing churches how to unite despite their ethnic differences. He travels around the known world to instruct people with with differences, to focus on the things they have in common in Christ rather than the things that separate them. And never once does he suggest that if it's hard for the Jews and Gentiles to worship together, well, then they can just set up churches on the other side of town from each other. The unity of people from various backgrounds within the church is to stand as a testimony to the world of the glory of God. This was God's vision from the very beginning. In Genesis 11, God does not confuse the languages so that all these tribes and nations would ultimately be separate forever. In Genesis 12, we find out that God did that for a season, but ultimately he blesses one tribe so that all tribes will be blessed. And God doesn't select Israel as his people because they're special 
<laughs> Look at why God chose Israel among all the nations to be his people to carry this blessing forth. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, listen to God's description of why. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery and the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God choose Israel? Because they were the fewest. <laughs> I like that. God chose Israel so no one would confuse their successes with their brilliance or their power or any of that. But all the glory would go to God because only God could do it. And ultimately, God chose Israel so that God could bless every nation on earth. And God's promise is that in the end, all nations will come together again. That's the future we await. It's the vision that the prophets who are dreaming of a future after exile give them about what happens in the final day, in the last day. Listen to this from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2, 2 through 4. What a beautiful picture of what God promises will come and what our future vision and glory will be. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. Now listen to how good news that would be because the temple that they know has been destroyed at this point. Let me read it again. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. How the exiles must have received that news as good news. And then John, in the book of Revelation, has a vision. And he writes the book of Revelation to speak about the future, but to speak to that current moment to the Romans in the first century, the Christians there who were living in that empire. And listen to the word that he gives about the future day of the Lord. Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, and people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. John's vision of the future kingdom that will be established is people from every tribe, tongue, and language standing before the throne of God and the Lamb and singing their praises to him. And won't it be a great day, church? What do we do in the meantime? What do we do when the world's still divided up into us's and them's? What do we do when it seems so hard to gather together in the midst of our differences? Our job is not to wait on our hands for God to make this reality alone. The job of Christians is to put God's future on display in this current moment. For centuries, the church has struggled to be a place that models the unity and diversity of what took place at Pentecost. 
And yes, of course, it's easier to build churches with people who look just like us, who believe just like us and live just like us. It's easier to gather a people, a crowd, a large church when that's your project and you have your target audience. But the vision of God has never been about an easy gathering of people. The vision of God and the future God has promised is a church that reflects the diversity of God's good creation. This was the disruption of the early church. It's what Paul gave all his life to try to help, to try to speak to, to try to write to, and we still have those letters to remind us that we have the same struggle today that we need to live out. In moments of disruptions, we have two options. We can go backward, back into what's safe, back into what's comfortable, or we can accept God's invitation to move forward And yes, it may be uncertain, and it may be disconcerting, but growth happens when we walk with God into the unknown with Abram, and with Jesus, and with the apostles. I don't believe God is behind the times, lurking somewhere in the past, trying to pull us back to some pristine moment in the past. I believe God is ahead of us. I believe that God knows the future. I believe God is is the future. And God's future includes a church of people representing every tribe, tongue, and language. God's future includes a diversity of people who learn to worship God in spite of their differences. It's tempting in moments like these to stick with what we know. It's tempting to grow churches filled with people who look just like us. It's tempting to remain as we are. But the future has already been revealed to us through scriptures that have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. When Jesus returns, the new heavens and the new earth will include people of every tribe, tongue, and language. So may we be a people and a church who practice for that future. May we put the future on display in this current moment. May we be a a church that chooses the discomfort of diversity over the comfort of sameness. And may we be a church who proves that the Holy Spirit truly lives in us. Because that same spirit who brings diverse and different and conflicted people together is the same spirit who indwells us in our church today. This is my prayer. And let us close with prayer this morning. Father, over the past few weeks, we have discovered that disruption is not a new thing in our world. It's something that's happened for the people of God at every single juncture in history. We could go on past scripture to talk about the church throughout the generations. We could talk about the disruptions that happen over and over again. And and right now in our world, we need you. We need your work. We need your spirit to deal and help us deal with the disruptions we're facing right now. To be a people who don't run away from tragedy, but run toward it as your helpers. To be a people who share the good news and embody the good news of your multinational kingdom, God, that will reign forever and ever. So may we be a people who choose to move forward, God, who trust you as you beckon us forward to unknown lands and unknown places. May we be the trailblazers who get to taste the sweetness and spirit of God before we invite others to do the same. So give us courage. 
and give us boldness and meet us even in the moments we think you're not there. See you leading us every step of the way. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus who lives and reigns with you eternally. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you to inspire people to follow Jesus because you're convinced, like we are, that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Connect with us on Instagram. You can find and follow us there at Greenville Oaks. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.